Sheryl Sandberg is a master at this. Uh, I've both been on the receiving end of this, and I've also watched her give really good feedback to others. One of the first things she does is she doesn't frame it as a one-way conversation. She frames it as a dialogue. And so she'll come in and say, hey, Paul, I want to talk about how we can work better together. Which is very different from, hey, Paul, I want to talk about all the ways you suck. Yeah. Right? This, this is about our collaboration. It's about saying, you know, it's, it's not you. It's not me. It's us. And we have to figure out how we could, you know, in a sports context, it would be, how do we play together more effectively, right? How do we, how do we align our strengths? How do we compensate for each other's weaknesses? And I think that, that frame is often game-changing. Hey, everyone. Paul Rabel here. This week's guest is awesome. Adam Grant. He's been Wharton School of Business's top-rated professor for the last six years. He's a three-time New York Times bestselling author. The books were Give and Take, Originals, and Option B. He's a leading expert on how we can find motivation and meaning, live more generously and creatively in our lives. He's been recognized as one of the world's, the world's top 10 most influential management thinkers. He's a Fortune's rated 40 under 40. He's had two viral TED Talks. I encourage you to look them up. We also circle them in the pod and has recently launched his own pod with Ted called Work Life with Adam Grant. He also works, advises, and consults with organizations like Facebook, Google, the NBA, obviously the sports influencer, which we hack into on this pod, BCG, Amex, Disney, Army and Navy, an incredible bunch. I first learned about Adam several years ago through his books. And many of you longtime listeners of my show may recall different interviews where I both recommend and call out his book with Sheryl Sandberg, who's Facebook COO, Option B, which subtitle, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy. And one day, just over a year ago, Adam reached out to me over email and said, hey, Paul, thank you for the call out. It was a pretty short email, but I was shocked, uncertain of my place in his world of influence and also how he even got my email. But blown away by his out by message which was entirely unexpected, made my day, and continues to inspire me to do the same moving forward. So 12 months later, I reached back out to that same email to request if he could join me on this show. Note, I needed 12 months of prep. Of course, Adam made it work, and today I'm sharing that conversation with you. Many of you know I've spent the greater part of the last four years of my life in sports psychology, which stemmed from the World Championships loss in 2014, And then the last two and a half years in cognitive and interpersonal therapy, which has been hugely beneficial to my personal and professional growth. And like those sessions, today's episode will be brought to you in one place with no ads. So enjoy my conversation with Adam Grant. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. I know how busy you are. It's a a short amount of time for you in New York with media, meetings, consulting, all the stuff that you do. It's an honor to be here. Yeah. So actually, speaking of of being busy, though, I I would be curious on your thoughts here. I I subscribe to Debbie Millman, who who paints a really interesting picture on busy being a choice. And I know you're running from place to place. I run from place to place. Sometimes it pressurizes me. I'd be curious how you digest it. Yeah, you know, it's it's a choice, but sometimes it's a choice that other people make for you, right? Mm-hmm. So one of my core values is is helpfulness. And I love to, you know, to show up and support others wherever I can, whether that's by sharing knowledge or making introductions or, you know, sometimes just uh, just being there to support other people. And if you, you know, if you add up the number of people in your life that you care about, uh, pretty soon it's it's hard to choose not to be busy, right? right. Because then you're you're letting those people down. And so I've, I, it's, it's a constant struggle for me. Do you enjoy being busy? I do, overall. I think, uh, you know, I feel like a kid in a candy store 
only the candy store has ballooned in the past five years to be the size of New York City. <laughs> and I, I try to eat it all and then I get really sick. And then, you know, the cycle starts again. What, what about a, a specific hack around mindfulness, meditation, being present? Is that like the, the main salve that you would lean on as you go from one conference call to a conversation with this pro lacrosse player to your next meeting? You know, I, I do very little intentionally to, to reset or center or recharge. Uh, I think that I, I get a lot of energy from being intellectually engaged. Mm. And so I guess part of what happens is I fill my day with, you know, with interesting problems to solve and interesting things to work on. And so I feel like, you know, the reset is I, you know, I, I was just in a, a, a fun phone call and now I'm here getting to talk with you and figure out how these things that I study might apply to sports. And, you know, to me, that's just exciting. Yeah. And you, you have successfully transitioned into organizational psychology you you grew up in sports and you were aspiring NBA basketball player, yeah. and then an All American no, high nowhere school nowhere near nowhere near reality on that one. Well, but. well, I'm curious, you know, how as as you were also an avid video gamer, um, you know, kind of fast forward to now. I wonder if you'd have found your way into esports, but <laughs> you know, I actually I feel like in some ways I was born in the like the the wrong decade because. <laughs> I remember in uh, in seventh grade going to a Mortal Kombat tournament uh, oh. on Super Nintendo, and I did well enough that I got a lifetime movie pass to our local theater. Really, I think I, I think I finished third. And you know, I, I look at esports now, and I think that that was for me. I wouldn't yeah. have been a nerd if, yeah. <laughs> if I were a kid today, or I well, would have been a, a more successful nerd. Yeah. <laughs> They've been able to monetize it. So five a.m. wake up calls. You said uh, around at one point around playing video games. I look at the aspiration around professional sports and then your achievement of being a high school All-American in diving as this, this rooted in competition. It's clear that, that you have this competitive energy and, I, and I'm, I'm a subscriber to your podcast and I heard uh, on one of the episodes you and your wife kind of laugh about your athleticism. But, <laughs> or lack thereof. Uh, yeah. well, listen, you're a high school All-American athlete. There, there are athletic genes there. What are what are the roots like? Why sports? Why is that so important to you, or was and is today? You know, that's that's actually something I've been trying to figure out. So maybe you can help me with this, okay. as, as somebody who spent a lot more time in the world of, of real athletes than I have. I I think I, I first fell in love with sports when I was I was five or six. My grandmother taught me to read the the baseball standings hmm. uh, in the box scores, and I would go over to her house every weekend, and you know we would we, we would watch games, but we would also go through the statistics. And pretty soon I was collecting baseball cards and then basketball cards and it snowballed. And I remember, I think I was about eight when I created like a, a totally on paper fantasy sports league with, with my friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would all draft players and then we would, we would copy down the stats, you know, from like either Prodigy or watching SportsCenter early days. And uh, my friends used to make fun of me. They called me Mr. Facts <laughs> because we'd be trading baseball cards and somebody would say, well, you know, you can't. You can't uh, you can't offer me that you know that Will Clark he only batted 267 last year and I'd be like no he batted 268 yeah and it was really annoying but well, I just uh, I I don't know it was fascinating to me that you could that you could isolate people's performance in a way that you could measure it and try to improve it and so I guess I was hooked on an early version of Moneyball just as a as a fan yeah but then as you know as somebody who loved participating in sports I just I love the challenge of trying to master something. Um, especially when it was something that I wasn't good at, but I admired other people being good at it. And so, you know, I'd watch a basketball player who could sink, you know, six or seven free throws in a row. And I'd just watch that and say, I want to learn how to do that. Yeah. And, and in sports, particularly analytics and wearable technology has become so prevalent and widely adopted. There's a downside of it, but 
part of hearing what you're saying there too also seems like it transferred well into the workplace and your organizational work on the psychology side and creating a work culture and a work environment or advising on environments on the entrepreneurial space and even for Fortune 500 companies, how to make it better. And that is also a common theme in sports is how do we make our locker room better? The, the, the best cultured teams tend to be in the best position to win. They don't always win. But I, I guess there are a lot of crossover um, skills and learnings from sports into the workplace. What, what I wanted to drum up here with you in particular, though, is also the downside of sports and the hyper-masculinity that's associated with such and, and the sexism that's cultivated, the uh, discrimination against so sexual orientation, racism, uh, just gender gaps and, and, uh, and social justice gaps in general. And almost this pass, even in the, the working dynamic that coaches that are traditionally like Bobby Knight per se get versus if you ever did that at Wharton, yell at or berate a student, that would be, that would be nuts. So there is, a, a, there is a big downside that I've discovered having played lacrosse for 20 years and now my career in particular, half of my playing days professionally. Um, and I could be wrong here, but what I'm thinking about as you wanted to play basketball, which is hyper-masculine, similar to football and lacrosse, although I, I do have a lot of admiration for the NBA and what they're doing for change and, and using their platform as a proxy of such. But you then get into diving where I swam, and it's, it's not a very masculine thing to be in a Speedo. Not at all. Jumping into the pool. And, exactly. So my, my guess is, as, as I consider you an empath, uh, getting both sides of sport was probably helpful to getting kind of out of that hyper-masculine bucket? You know, it's, it's interesting. I never thought about it this way, but you're, you're right. <laughs> when, when I was in high school, the, the thing that I loved most about, you know, I, I loved diving being an individual sport where everything was on me, hmm. right? And, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't having, you know, to think about, you know, a game like soccer where, okay, no matter how well I played, if somebody, you know, if somebody kicked the ball in a different direction, then, you know, I was sort of out of luck. In um, in diving, it was it was all me and a diving board and the laws of physics, right? Mm -hmm. um, the best part of being on a team, though, with with a bunch of swimmers, was we all shared the same goal, and you know we were we, we went from my freshman year, uh, swimmers sort of hating divers and resenting the fact that we didn't practice in the morning and that we looked like we were having a lot more fun than they were, except when we'd crash all over the pool, <laughs> uh, to you know to really feeling like we were all in the same boat and the swimmers for the first time ever in our team inviting the divers to their Saturday breakfasts, and we had this tremendous camaraderie, and I, I found myself looking for that and thinking, okay, what, I, what I'd love to be part of is a team that's, that's that cohesive, where everybody is, is passionate about the same objective. Mm -hmm. And that turns out to be really hard to find, I think, both in, in sports and in the workplace, right? Super hard. And I've heard uh, other coaches just deal with it as a reality. Like Greg Popovich will say this, Coach K will say this, and they'll use this 10%, 80%, 10% theory that the top 10%, your captains, your best performers, your highest performers, you actually need to spend the least amount of time with them because you can count on them to act in your favor. It's the 80% of the team that you have to focus on swaying towards the bottom 10%, which is a part of any or most pro college high school. You got to get the 80 to be more like the top 10 than the bottom 10. Um, but, but I've heard you talk a lot about, and, and we'll reference one of your New York Times bestselling books, uh, Givers versus Takers, and how in strong organizations, oftentimes your best players, whether it's sports or your top salespeople in business, are your takers, and that can be really eroding on your culture, you're saying you have to potentially eliminate them 
But what about when you can't? Well, I think, first of all, I think it's, it's unfortunate there are so many toxic superstars out there. Yeah. Right? Because the, the thing that we do in most teams and in most companies is we measure individual performance. And so if you're looking at sales revenue or you're looking at points scored, it's really easy for the, the takers to sort of maximize their success and say, look, I stand out. I deserve you know, extra status. Uh, I deserve extra pay. They're incentivized for their contracts in sports. Totally. And so what we don't do as well is measure what's the impact of your success on your team. So you, know, you can think about this in terms of a plus minus in sports. Yep. Uh, but that, I, I think it goes even further than that because there's, there's also an effect on do people want to stay on this team? Yeah. And we know that if, if you have a, a taker on a team, the odds that your, your other stars who are not takers uh, often double or triple that those, those other stars want to leave. Yeah. Uh, because you know nobody nobody who's who's really good and who cares about the team wants to play with a selfish person. Yeah, you did an analysis on the Butler Bulldogs, the basketball team, and how perennially they are in the NCAA tournament and how to run in Final Fours and don't traditionally have these blue chip recruits. I've had Sam Walker on my podcast. who wrote the Captain Class, yeah. and he's wonderful, and he talks about the the value of the single captain, the water carrier, and such. Butler has all captains. So I, I wish I had listened to this podcast that you put out recently and brought that up to Sam. But talk about the Butler culture. I had a, a funny email exchange with Sam on that where okay. we, we, we want to get to the bottom of this. Okay, yeah. Uh, because, you know, you could say Butler has everyone's a captain or no one's a captain. Yeah. But they've really decentralized leadership and mm-hmm. they, they see it as a shared leadership structure on the team, which is a, a topic that's starting to get a lot of attention in, in the org psych field. Um, it's, it's doable, but it's hard, right? We, we kind of have years of mental models and experience built up around how to work with a single leader. And I think it takes a lot more effort to coordinate if, if you have multiple people sort of carrying the reins. But what, um, what I th- one of the things I found so interesting about Butler is I had a long talk with Brad Stevens, who you know, coached him for a long time mm-hmm. and, and now is the Celtics coach, where you know, I was asking him, him the exact question you posed to me, which is, what do you do if you've got a taker on your team? And, you know, you, you need the guy. He's talented. But, you know, he's, he's really damaging the culture. He's not playing in a way that elevates the team. And my, my instinct was, you know, you, you make the case for why it's, it's good for him to shift his style. Right? So maybe you tell the story of, of Michael Jordan being convinced by Phil Jackson that if he played more you know, unselfishly, it would actually serve the team. And he would be able to win more. And he would be open for more of the game-winning mm-hmm. shots. And Brad said, no, that's not how you do it. Mm-hmm. What you do is you get this guy to think about what kind of teammate he wants to play with. And what's so nice about that is it, it shifts the frame of reference. And so a, a good example from the Celtics is, you know, you could, you could ask the players, like, who do you want on your team? Hmm. And a bunch of people will say Al Horford, who's known as one of the big givers in the NBA. And he's always looking for opportunities to make his teammates better. And that, Brad said, that's how you get through to people, right? You, you have them think about what kind of teammate they want to play with. And then sometimes that's a, a way to motivate them to change their own habits. Yeah. Another player that jumps out, and I was lucky enough to sit down with him over dinner and pleasantly surprised to hear him on one of your shows is Shane Battier. Yeah. Uh, but certainly uh, would qualify himself and has said this a number of times as an overachiever. He was a high school basketball player of the year, college basketball player of the year, and then neglected in the pros, but accounted for these role-playing systems and winning championships. You talk a lot about role players and the value there and not being entrenched in superstars on one team, although we all take on this, I call it like this Madden GM um, <laughs> persona where we just want to like draft all the best players and trade for all the best, and that's going to be a winning formula. So how do you convince a player that while being a role player isn't sexy and you're not going to get the accolades 
even when it's all said and done, but you're arguably the, the, the largest contributor to the team's success. Like, what is that conversation like? And or is, is it less of a mechanism of convincing? It's just finding those right people. I, look, I, I think it's, it's, it's worth trying to convince, right? Because if, if you already have the players on your team, it's going to be less effort to at least start the discussion than yeah. it is to replace them. I don't, you know, I, I don't think you can ever guarantee that you're going to convert them. Right. But I think the, the biggest challenge is that a lot of the, if, if you look at pro sports, a lot of the players who are now going to become role players have been the star their whole lives. Hmm. And so it would be one thing to come in at age 11 and say, look, if you want a spot on this team, you're, you're going to have to play some other roles, right? And like me getting cut from my sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade basketball teams, I would have been thrilled just to have a spot, right? I would have been the towel boy for that matter. Um, but, you know, when somebody's been a star for, for a decade or more, um, it's, it's suddenly like you're being demoted. And so I think the first thing you have to do is you have to actually affirm the person's value, right? That we're, we're not saying you're not great. We're just saying that the, you know, the physical tools that, that people have in this league are maybe on a different level. And we, we still believe you can add value. We just want to think differently about the way that you add value. And then I think the second thing you do is you try to highlight the ways in which making the team more successful serves the individual. Mm-hmm. And so you, know, you, you have the discussion of, look, if, if somebody is willing to fill this role, which is not going to you know, have a lot of glory attached to it, um, the team you know, has a better shot at winning. And then that's going to reflect back on all the players on the court, right? Not just the couple of stars. What about the tactic of having that conversation? Um, you're, you're really a great communicator. Being able to pull someone aside, is, is that's certainly, my guess, part of the methodology. But the framing of that conversation, feedback is so important. We hear it a lot now more than ever, but it's still just as difficult to accept. And I, personally, through most of my 20s, I'm, I'm the guy that we were talking about. The one who was chasing statistics that was entrenched in in results over That's hard to believe. Over growth. Really? Big time. So what converted you? Uh, losing, injury, uh, lack of growth relationally. Just kind of like all, all of the above surmised at one point. And then when I broke my foot, I had nowhere to go but my couch, so I called and, and hired a sports psychologist. Huh. And then I then and then I got into psychoanalysis work personally and relationally, and and that has really led to this three year evolution that I've experienced more of the happiness and fulfillment that that you speak of, and even in in your book with Cheryl Sandberg that I've referenced a bunch on this podcast. Option B, um, nevertheless, framing is 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 still a challenge for me in having a good feedback session with a teammate where it is a threat to that person's ego going yeah. into it. This is actually, Cheryl Sandberg is a master at this. Uh, I've both been on the receiving end of this, and I, I've also watched her give really good feedback to others. One of the first things she does is she, she doesn't frame it as a one-way conversation. She frames it as a dialogue. And so she'll come in and say, hey, Paul, I want to talk about how we can work better together, which is very different from, hey, Paul, I want to talk about all the ways you suck. Yeah. Right? This, this is about our collaboration. It's about saying, you know, it's, it's not you, it's not me, it's us. And we have to figure out how we could, you know, in a sports context, it would be, how do we play together more effectively, right? How do we, how do we align our strengths? How do we compensate for each other's weaknesses? And I think that, that frame is often game-changing. The other thing she does is she asks for feedback back. And, you know, she says, hey, you know, I want to give you some suggestions that I, you know, that have sort of dawned on me that I think would help us work better together. I want to hear your suggestions, too. Does that come first, do you think? receiving the feedback or, or and or the other part is because I've been in some of these feedback sessions and really try to, to exemplify it is 
is do you give them time to create feedback? Because it's it's also difficult if you just say in the conversation, now I want you to tell me. It's like, well, I haven't given enough thought. Yeah, I think I think it's always good to give people a heads up on this. And so, you know, it, it prevents them from being blindsided. One of the things mm-hmm. that I've seen her do is say, you know, next week, you know, in our one-on-one, it would be great to talk about how we can work better together. I'm going to come up with some ideas. You know, I would be thrilled to hear your ideas too. And, you know, then we'll sort of treat it as a problem-solving session. Yeah. One of my favorite, uh, you, you, you both call it the, the platinum rule of friendship, but talking about framing and similar, like the, the, the us, uh, that is, is the, 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 one of the heat things that we hear often and we grow up with is treat others the way that you would want to be treated. And you're shaking your Don't head. Don't do it. Don't do it. And, it. and it should be treat others the way that they want to be treated. And, and that, I think, in, embodies a bit of empathy in, in, in really trying to put yourself in, in their shoes. And I think that in sports, uh, that can also be a way that you walk into a conversation with a teammate um, or a coach where you're not seeing eye to eye and, and approaching it through their lens first. Uh, that, that totally strikes a chord with me. Uh, it reminds me of um, in, my, in my diving days, I had this incredible coach, Eric Best, who was you know one of the hardest things about diving is motivating yourself to do a new dive. So, you know, later in in my diving career, you know, I'd be jumping into the air doing two somersaults and a full twist and trying to land head first. And, you know, 3 meter diving in particular, uh, 1 meter is less painful, but you can hit the water at 20, 30 miles an oh. hour. And there was there was one day where I crashed a couple times and flat on my back and I was I had bruises for about 6 weeks. And, you know, aside from the pain, it's just, it can be terrifying to be totally lost in midair and not know whether you're right, you know, right side up or upside down. And you know, you're going to smack, but you don't know whether you're going to hit your ear or your face or, you know, do a belly flop. And uh, I think those two things combined, especially early on, I was just terrified of trying new dives. And, you know, Eric had the, the wisdom to recognize that he had to motivate me the way I wanted to be motivated, not the way that he was motivated when he was a diver. And so... With, uh, you know, in, in his case, right, what he, what he wanted to do was he wanted to be able to do, you know, the, the most exciting new dives. And so, you know, he had coaches who would paint a picture of, think about what this is going to be like when you're able to do this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's look at this sort of exciting, optimistic path forward. Um, for me, Eric understood that the worst thing for me was to let someone down. And that, you know, I, I really cared about standing by my commitment to other people. And so he would, you know, I'd be standing there shaking on the diving board. Uh, one practice, I actually stood there for 45 minutes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't move. Hmm. And he said, you know, Adam, are you going to do this or not? Because you promised me that you were going to do this dive today. And when he asked that question, it was like a, a switch flipped. I'm like, I cannot leave this practice without following through on my commitment to my coach. I went and did it. I only crashed a little. And it became one of my favorite dives. Is coaching, do you think, one of the more under valued, underrated positions, I, I suppose, much like teaching when, when done properly and really leaning into the soft skills, that uh, probably sports could be and, and programs could be a little bit more intentional and thoughtful around that hiring process. But I guess limited resources sometimes peg us down to the local parent who has the time at three, three o'clock in the afternoon. I think that's, that's one major problem that we all see, right? Is, you know, you just default to the person who's available. I think there's also a reverse problem, which is too often we look to the, the best athletes as coaches. Yep. And we say, look, the, you know, the, the higher you peaked, the better you're going to be. And tell me if this is your experience. I think it's the opposite, that the more natural talent and opportunity you had, the less you actually had to study the game and understand it. And I think very frequently the best coaches are the ones who were 
average or even lackluster athletes because they had to they had to really unpack how do I how do I master my knowledge of the game in order to build my expertise? I think that's a really interesting angle I haven't thought about in the the, the idea that you know premium talent athletic genes allow someone to get through a process or succeed in sports easier. They don't have to be as cerebral around the process. My thought additionally to that is that someone of of high technical capabilities, all pro basketball player. Their their value proposition on instruction is very bespoke to probably like the McDonald's All American Seniors, where mm-hmm. they can get into like the fraction of the degree of an inch that this person's releasing, and probably help them with their shot. But generally, coaching I think has all to do with soft skills and being able to empathize with kids that uh, are there to improve, but are also dealing with the social life uh, challenges, the pressures in school. Um, you know, just building resilience for the first time yeah. through sports as a vehicle. I think, from my experiences, those coaches that can that can listen and contribute and create this two way street are far more valuable. And it has nothing to do with with performance or or accolades in the particular sport. And at the same time, someone who has top accolades may be great if they have developed those soft skills and know how to relate to a younger generation. But it's it's a very unique quality and characteristic. Your mother was a teacher, right? Yep. And now you're a teacher and voted one of the top teachers at Wharton School of Business for the past six or seven years and and will probably be ongoing. That's how we were connected, at least over email. We had had dialogue over Twitter a number of times, but I got to give a shout out to Rob Petroforte, who who I went to school with and, and work with today. Uh, so the impact that you have, I imagine, is a big part of going back to one of the original conversations we were having around giving and the fulfillment that you get through that dialogue, through that teaching mechanism of working with younger kids and seeing them blossom? I, I mean, for me, that's that's the best part of my job, right? So Rob's an amazing former student, uh, just brought so much energy and so many new ideas to the classroom. And also just, as you know, somebody who cares deeply about other people. Mm-hmm. And when, when, I, when I connect with a student like that, one, it's, you know, it's just, it's inspiring, right? To say, hey, this gives me hope for the future. Two, uh, I think that sometimes an investment in those students uh, is is a way to have a bigger impact because if there's a, a small door that I can open for Rob or, you know, an insight that that I can maybe help unlock, he's going to go and help a lot of people, right? And he's going to do a lot of good in his work. And so, you know, to, to me, it feels like it's, it's an amplifier of, yeah. you know, of the time that I spend. Yeah. And, and what's really interesting is that you talk about through a lot of your teachings and even the book originals is is that you know the the those who succeed and there's maybe there's this um, misconception that it's all about hard work it's all about passion talent and luck and 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 that it can be kind of deciphered as serving the ego or taking versus this 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 idea around giving and you've identified two polar ends of the spectrum there there are those givers who who actually don't achieve the success because they're so selfless and they don't chase the deals it's this paradigm that we are are always kind of positioned in emotionally and physically it's the differentiation that we try to study from a psychology standpoint so for Knowing that, and I've felt this too towards the back half of my playing career, is, is that giving is far more fulfilling and you see success at, at, through the light at the end of the tunnel. But what are, again, some tactics to avoid being the charitable giver that doesn't progress in career? 
So I thought when I started studying this dynamic, I thought that it was one continuum. On one extreme, you have you know selfish people. On the other extreme, you have selfless people. And so I thought, okay, take her, give her, we're good. When I actually measured how motivated people are to help others and how motivated they are to advance their own goals, I found that they were uncorrelated. So it was actually two by two, hmm. not not one dimension. And you know, one axis is basically you know concern for others, givers score high. Takers tend to score low. And then the other is concern for self. And you find there are two kinds of givers. So there are givers who are not concerned about themselves. They only care about helping others. And they tend to be self-sacrificing. They neglect themselves. Hmm. And they're at greater risk for burning out and also getting burned by the takers in their lives. Successful givers say, you know what? I am ambitious for other people, but I'm ambitious for myself too. And so I'm going to make sure that when I help others, it's not like I want something back. But I'm going to be careful not to do that at a personal cost so that I don't overextend myself. And if you break that down, it comes down to, I think, three big kinds of choices that we make. Uh, it's a question of who you're going to help, how you're going to help, and when you're going to help. And we can, we can talk through those if you want. Yeah, we'd love to. So I think the, the first choice is who you're going to help. Yep. Failed givers spend a huge amount of time helping takers. And one, they get mm. exploited a lot. Two, they're reinforcing that selfish behavior and letting people get away with it, yep. which is a problem. Successful givers learn to set boundaries and say, look, if I meet somebody who's got a history or a reputation of selfish behavior, I am not going to be as generous with that person. And, you know, I, I want to make sure I protect myself to not get taken advantage of. Yeah. How, how do you go about uh, kind of uh, zooming out, so to speak? And, and I mentioned differentiation and something that I think about a lot is, is understanding the path that I'm on, you know, kind of the actual path versus the ideal path and, and try to get those closer together. And, and there are ways that you can do that uh, through self-work, through, um, you know, kind of moving away from the things that are detrimental to your life. So a lot of awareness of what's happening and then relationally finding people that can help. Uh, but my guess is uh, f for, for the givers that service the takers often, and I've felt this at least, is there's also a sense of satisfaction because the takers tend to be a little bit more boisterous <laughs> and, and you, know, you build that relationship with someone that you romanticize a bit and maybe best in class in particular. So it's like, hey, I want to give to this person because it'll make me feel good which is kind of important too, that we feel good. So how do you kind of you know, set that? Right? What are the rules of engagement at, at, at a baseline level so we can all kind of zoom out? And Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because on average, takers are much more entitled than givers. Uh, and givers tend to show much more gratitude when they receive help. But to your point, there are a lot of strategic takers who are fakers, who are really good when you help them and saying, oh my gosh, Paul, you changed my life. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> And, you know, I think what you, what you have to do, to your point about zooming out, is you have to look at the pattern of behavior over time. Hmm. Uh, my wife has a, a funny way of, of capturing this. Uh, I, I don't think she finds it funny, but I do. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a moment, uh, this, this happens at least once a month, sometimes more often, where she'll say, why are you helping this person? You only hear from them when they want something. Huh. And that's become a cue to me that, hey, somebody, you know, who might have seemed really appreciative in the moment is actually just using me. And my, my typical response is, you know, I, so what? If they want to use me, you know, I'm, I'm doing like a little five-minute favor here. It costs me nothing. And she said, yeah, but why are you letting them get away with that? Shouldn't you hold them accountable for treating people fairly or generously? And I think, I think Allison is right. And what I've been trying to do now is when I help somebody who, you know, seems to have this pattern, right, of, of constantly needing things and not necessarily showing much concern for others, 
when I help them, I will ask them now to pay it forward and help somebody else that I'm trying uh, to help. Yeah, and, and, and so it's not paying it back. And, and you mentioned those as the matchers, kind of in between yes. the givers and takers, the matchers, like I'll do something if you do something for me. So pay it forward, I like that. Uh, one question off the back of that is screening. We talked a little bit about it, or you mentioned it. And in sports, I don't think, I, I, I guess suppose you could say in interviews, but you can identify humble brags or certain self call outs through, through questions. You know, what, what's, yeah. what are you challenged with the most? Well, I'm a perfectionist or I, I work uh, so hard. I can, so there's humble brags, but in sports, the screening is really difficult because everyone wants to win yep. and everyone puts team first. So <clears throat> Butler had mentioned going back to that 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 they uh, that they screen uh, by by asking the question Would you rather score five points on, on behalf of your team or maybe less and that team win or score twenty five points and your team lose I feel like that's also a, a pretty basic question So is there a, a, another level of screening yeah. through that Yeah I mean the the risk there is transparency mm-hmm. right You you will find that there's some players who just say Yeah you know what I want to score twenty five and you know. Maybe we won't lose next time. Or Michael Jordan will say, I'll score 25 and we'll win. Yeah, or <laughs> screw that, I'm scoring Just like massive 50, ego. Right? Right? Yeah, yeah. But I think that if... You know, I think it's safe to say that none of us are Michael Jordan. No. And he's an anomaly. So I like to also reference that. But Yeah, so I think, you know, that, look, there will be some players who, who try to game that sort of question. So there, there are a few workarounds. The first one is, instead of asking people about their own preferences and behaviors, you ask them to predict what others would do. Yeah. So uh, my favorite example of this is theft. So let's say we were going to try to predict, are you going to steal from your team? I would ask you a question like, what percent of people do you think would steal at least $10 a month from their team? And that could be equipment, that could be you know cash, it could be merchandise, supplies, etc. And then you come up with your estimate. And it turns out, the higher your estimate that other people are thieves, the greater the odds that you are a thief. Huh. Which, wow. you know, which is, which is kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> but if you look at why, the reason is most of us project our own motivations on others. And so, you know, I'd start answering that question and I'd ask myself, well, what, what would I do or what have I done? And then I assume, you know, okay, other people will probably be similar. So an extreme taker answering that question is like, uh, let's see, what percent of people would steal $10 in a month? Because takers always talk like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I, like, I stole 374 last week. 10 a month has got to be pr- pretty common. 94%. Yeah. yeah. And meanwhile, the givers on the other end are like, how do you even steal $10 from a team? Like, yeah. how many pens do you have to take home to add up? It's got to be pretty rare, 3% of people. And these differences play out in large samples. You see that takers anticipate more selfish behavior from others. And that's how they rationalize and justify being a taker. It's not me. All of you people are selfish. Mm. So I'm just being smart and cautious when I protect myself. So the way I would apply this is I would say, whatever taking behavior you're worried about having in your team, uh, whether that's stealing credit for other people's inputs whether it's you know hogging all the you know the visible roles and not being willing to do the grunt work, you you know not showing up at practice, you ask people how common that behavior is, mm-hmm. and then if they give a high estimate, you ask them why, and there are lots of legitimate answers like I worked with a lot of thieves or you know my job was to catch the thieves on my yeah. last team, and that's fine. What's what's really deadly is when somebody says, you know I just believe that other people are fundamentally selfish, which is code for I'm fundamentally selfish. Wow, I. I, that that actually underscores one one of uh, the other 
folks that that I admire is uh, Seth Godin, and he comes off as as a giver, and he's Seth been, is a huge giver, one of the most <laughs> generous people I know. Yeah, and he's been giving just by virtue of his blog for years, uh, daily, and and many of many other ways. But he's under the assumption, as as an example, he recommends going to the assumption that everyone is good. And that would be the counter response that we would be looking for. It would. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Mm. Because if you assume the worst in people, you often bring out the worst in them. Mm. You assume the best, it's, you know, it's more likely that people strive to be that person. But back to our earlier point, you have to be really careful because some takers will take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah. The other thing you can do, by the way, if you want to... uh, yeah, if you're thinking about like drafting or scouting, how do you spot a taker is you don't have to rely on the player, him or herself, right? What you can do is you can say, all right, let me, you know, let me talk to their teammates, their family, their coaches. And just like references in, yeah. in the business world, a lot of people are just glowing. But you can get them to be honest by giving them a forced choice between two bad things. So huh. I might ask, what's more likely for this player? Uh, that he's just a total pushover and, you know, he gets taken advantage of by his teammates constantly. Or, you know, he's a little bit manipulative and selfish. And if I set that up right, you don't know what the right answer is. But I know what my preference is, right? I'll, I'll work on teaching the pushover to set boundaries right. uh, and stand up for himself as opposed to trying to convince the manipulative guy, you know, to become a team player. And so, you know, if, if, you, if, you, if you design that right, uh, you know, what's more likely that this person is too dominant in a team meeting or too quiet? Uh, you can start to learn a little bit more about who these people really are. Yeah, that, that's a great share and, and something that, that we'll use going forward. Uh, while we have you here on tactics, you mentioned the five-minute favors as a way to uh, give a giver an, an opportunity to, to to have that fulfillment in sharing, but keeping it somewhat boundaried yeah. and, and say, okay, I can experience these. It's like just setting a timer on, on work product and such and making sure that you're not just spending all of your time giving. The, the other aspect you talk about is, is creating an environment where people feel comfortable asking questions. And especially in sports where coaches are supposed to know all the answers, players are supposed to be perfect, outwork the competition <laughs> yeah. at all times, never back down from a fight, all this toughness, that all the stuff leads to not asking for help. Uh, one of my favorite CEOs is Howard Schultz, and he says that's the most underrated characteristic of any leader is the ability to ask for help. So less about the players and even about the coach, more about the coaches. Yep. So how do you create an environment where asking is welcomed, especially in, in an environment that is kind of the antithesis of that in sports? Well, I think I, obviously it's easier to make this happen if you model it and start from the top, right? So if you go back to Butler, one of the the great moments that they had uh, that I heard a lot about while I was there was uh, was with with Brad Stevens and other coaches later on after losing a game saying, you yeah, know, this is on me. I made a bad call here. And, you mm. know, normally coaches are pointing fingers yep. right, and, and trying to hold players responsible. And when you, you point the blame inward, uh, that naturally then says, it, it opens the door for you to say, hey, you know what? I, I really need all of your help. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, was there a better play to call in that situation mm-hmm. when, you know, when the game was on the line? And, you know, that that shows everybody on the team that you're fallible. You can make mistakes. And if they have ideas, you know, if they have ways to help, they, they, should, they should share them freely. Uh, what's interesting to me about that the idea of, you know, making it safe to ask for help is if you want to build a culture of givers in your team uh, and you study, you know, how does that culture unfold? Of course, it helps to screen out the takers because mm-hmm. you know, they, they tend to, to make givers paranoid. Uh, it you know of course helps to make sure that you measure giving behaviors and reinforce those, not just individual achievements. 
But I think in some cases, the most important factor is you, cultures of givers are help, cultures of help seekers. Hmm. So if you want a culture of generosity, you need people to ask for help a lot. And the reason for that is that most giving starts with a request, right? I, I don't think there are that many moments on sports teams where you're like, hey, you know, I'm kind of bored this month. How could I enrich your life? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I got my own stuff to worry about. Yeah. But I will step up if somebody says, hey, could you could you help me with this problem here? And so if nobody ever asks, you have all these frustrated givers in your team who would be happy to pitch in if only they knew who needed their help and how. In the workplace, the data show 75 to 90% of all helping starts with a, a request. And I would imagine in sports, it's, it's probably pretty similar. Yeah, I, th I think the biggest challenge and hurdle, and, and pr probably in business as it is in sports, but in sports especially as, as we sit here and talk about it, is the vulnerability it takes. Because asking for help means you don't have the answer or you're not good enough. And I use uh, air quotes when yeah. I say that. Uh, which is, again, part of the fabric of, of sports is like, well, if I expose that I'm weak, I may not start or I may not get the contract. So I think your, your point around creating the environment that welcomes it has to proceed, has to supersede the risk that a player must take that may be in, in a position of, of insecurity on, in their role of their team to feel confident in asking those questions. Otherwise, they might lose their spot. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I guess there, you know, there are two other things that that sometimes help just make it easier to ask for help. One is that you can change the frame and instead of asking for help, you can ask for advice. Hmm. Advice seeking requires way less vulnerability. Right? It's like, "Hey, I'm just looking for your opinion or your recommendation." It doesn't suggest that I, you know, I don't have an opinion of my own or, you know, I can't trust my own judgment. I'm just collecting more information. And I think sometimes the, the very people who shy away from asking for help are super comfortable saying, you know what, I'd, I'd really love your advice on this dilemma here. The other thing is, I, I love this exercise called the reciprocity ring hmm. that Wayne and Cheryl Baker introduced me to about a uh, dozen years ago. Uh, they, they designed this process to make it easier for people to ask for help and give it. And all you do is you gather a group of people, it could be a, a team or a company, and you invite them all to make a request for something they want or need but cannot get on their own. And then you challenge everyone else to try to fulfill the request. Hmm. So everybody asks and everybody tries to give. And in my experience, about 80% of these requests get some meaningful help. And you see weird stuff. Like we had a guy ask, he said his dream was to see a Bengal tiger in the wild. <laughs> and nobody in the room had set foot on a continent where that was possible. Uh, we had a pharma company where somebody said, I need a cheaper way to you know, synthesize a strain of the PCS alkaloid and it's going to cost 50 grand and I can't afford it. Uh, and in both cases, they got the help they needed because there was mm. someone in the room who said, you know, hey, I, I know somebody who runs a game preserve. And a month later, this guy flies out. Unfortunately, the tigers got loose. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in the, in the pharma case, there's somebody who's got a lab with slack capacity. And they say, hey, you know, I can, this is a good learning project for my team. I can do it for free. And so often we, when we do ask for help, we only go to the, the person that we trust or that we've traded favors with in the past. And what this exercise does is it opens up the, the help request to the whole network so you can crowdsource it. And that works really well if everyone adopts this giving mindset. But it's very clear from the get-go that it's only going to work if we all are willing to ask. Mm. And so it gets the givers to, to open up and make their requests. They still cheat. They usually ask on behalf of other people instead of themselves. Huh. So it's like, hey, you know, I have this request. I'd love to help a friend out with this thing. Right. Uh, which is really not the point. But... We've, uh, we've been getting asked for years, is there a way to do this online? And so uh, we, we recently created this, this tool called Givitas, uh, which is an app designed to mm. facilitate 
you know, sort of in five minutes or less a day, you can go in and make a request. And then you can also go in and offer help to other people. And my hope is that that'll just make it easier for people to both seek help and to provide it. And the organizations that you'll consult on behalf of with these reciprocity rings, do you recommend doing it once a quarter, sooner or later? I guess it depends on the stage or, or the, the erosion of the culture or how good the company is operating right now. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I'd, I'd love to have better data on it. What I can tell you is that when, when Wayne and I studied one of them, we found that the, the takers on average tripled their contributions hmm. uh, relative to what they would normally give because the giving behaviors are all visible. And if you don't offer to help anybody, then everyone knows you're a taker. Yeah. And nobody wants to get caught, right? right. So I think that you know, what, what often happens is we do, we do one live. And then people experience both the, the connection to others and also just this tremendous sense of opportunity that, hey, I can, I can get help on a problem I've really been grappling with. But there are also all these people I can help in the room. It's going to cost me little to nothing and it's going to do a lot of good for them. And I didn't even know that I could help them. And I think once, once you get the energy in the room, it's really easy to port that online and then just kind of run it on an ongoing basis. But I'd, I'd love to study it and see how often it should be done. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It feels super powerful and something that, that we'll think about and, and, and definitely check out that app. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time. And I know you're, you're, you're very gracious to sit down. It's been, it's been a thrill to, to just go back and forth. We could talk for an entire day, or at least I could continue to try and pull from you. Uh, but, but I will say with, with your podcast that you recently launched or this past year uh, with TED Talks, it's, it's super exciting. It's called Work Life with, with Adam Grant. And you had previously written these New York Times books, best-selling books, and, and they're wonderful. And now you're shifting. So you're also forecasting uh, where media is being consumed and how people are preferring to consume it and and this giving mentality. So I, I love it. Audio is has been great for me. Uh, toward the title of, of your podcast, I, I want your feedback on uh, the way that I'm trying to process work-life balance. I'm deep in work right now and I'm playing um, uh, training mornings, playing on a team, contributing to culture of locker room, culture and workplace. And uh, Many of my close companions uh, tell me that I, I don't have much work-life balance, respectfully, and, and it's, it's not in an antagonizing <laughs> way. And I feel that more than ever I do right now because the way that I'm processing work-life balance is, is maybe unconventional than we first heard it, which is how much time in work, how, how much time in personal or life. And me, it's about understanding and being at peace or feeling balanced about the decision that I'm actually making. I think most of us feel off kiltered when we're putting more time into something and we want something else. Yeah. So I'm in this deep work training phase because I want to be, and I know it's a part of my life. I also know that it's not going to be for the, the elongated future, but I feel balanced in that and and feel free to, to, to shoot this down, although I know you would do it very, very, very <laughs> empathetically, but I do know that there's 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 value in, in personal experiences and and getting out and, and separating from work. So, what is your take on on that analysis of kind of Paul Rabel 2.0 sitting here <laughs> with you right now? Well, I have no help for you, but I definitely have some advice. Okay. <laughs> so, I think that I would say a couple of things. The first thing is, I think balance is a ridiculous concept. Uh, you know, if, if like think about the image in your head when you talk about work-life balance, like you're on a surfboard and you can fall off either side of it, or you know maybe some people talk about juggling and then you have to keep all these balls in the air at once and you're at risk of dropping one at any moment. I just I think those are the wrong way to think about this because human attention is limited in the sense that we can only focus on one thing at a time, 
And so the moment that you, you try to think about, well, how do I keep my work and my li- the rest of my life in balance? You're trying to do two things simultaneously. And we are terrible at parallel processors, yeah. right? We're not like computers. We're sequential processors. <laughs> <laughs> like one thing at a time. And so I, I have come to think about work-life balance, uh, to use the term uh, begrudgingly, as you know, something that I, I actually think about on the, the level of, the, of a week or a month as opposed to a day. So I, like today is a heavily work-focused day. Uh, I left the house about 7.45 in the morning. I'll be working until after 9 p.m. tonight, back-to-back with events and meetings and conversations. And, you know, I, I will feel like my life is out of balance if I think about it that way. Except, you know, we, we just took a family trip Thursday to Sunday, and mm. I did no work. And, you know, we were in complete family mode. And, you know, the same thing is going to happen Friday through Sunday. Uh, and so... I try to think about during a week, you know, how much time do I want to spend with my family? Carve that out. And then, you know, I'll fill in the work around that. And then I, I look at that in the month level too. So, you know, if I have a month that's, that's really travel heavy or where I'm doing intensive teaching, then my goal is for the next month to have blocked that out and had, you know, much more focus on, on things that were non-work. Uh, the one other thing I'll say on this, which is really interesting to the, the work-life balance idea is... Uh, so as, as part of the, the Work Life podcast, we solicited some listener questions recently. And one person wrote in and said that uh, she had a good friend who did her doctoral dissertation on how using the term work-life balance actually makes people more upset with their work-life balance. Yeah. Because you're like, ah, I'm out of balance. What do I do? Yeah. And if you just reframe it as work-life management, people had a mo- hmm. more positive attitude toward it. Because uh, they're like, hey, you know what? I, I just have to think about how to, you know, how to navigate this. And I, I thought that was helpful, so I will pass it along. Well, I really appreciate that. And passing along an abundance of advice and tactics, and this was really great. Uh, thank you for your time. This, is, this was a treat. Thank you for having me. Uh, so many interesting questions. I have a bunch of new ideas that I, uh, I want to go and, and gather some data on now, so I would love to do a follow-up. Yeah, that would be wonderful. If you enjoyed Adam and my conversation, please be sure to let us know. We're both active on social media. Adam's Twitter handle is a particularly awesome follow. It's at Adam M. Grant, and mine's at Paul Rabel. Be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with one of Adam and Wharton School of Business competitors, Scott Galloway, who teaches at Stern School of Business. And they're not actually competitors. They're just both two personal favorite guests of mine, which also, by the way, I may or may not be appearing on Scott Galloway's YouTube channel in the coming weeks. Stay tuned for that. His episode and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. Also, when you find us, please hit subscribe. There's a ton of gratitude that I'm sending your way for doing so. There's a shortcut to our show notes at suitinguppodcast.com. You can follow along, Adam and my conversation, minute by minute there. And of course, thank you for listening. You all make this podcast go. Have a great week, everyone.